Welcome one and all to Cineversary, a podcast that celebrates a milestone anniversary of a masterful work of cinema. Every month we send happy birthday wishes to a different film currently observing a joyous jubilee, anything from a 20th all the way up to a 100th anniversary. This, as ever, is your faithful host, Eric Martin, creator of the Cineverse blog and moderator of the weekly Cineverse Film Discussion Group. And hey, if you've just discovered our program, welcome. If you're a faithful listener, we always appreciate your return. With Halloween merely days away now, it's only appropriate to pay tribute this time around to a horror masterpiece, and arguably the finest monster movie ever made. So this month we celebrate the 90th anniversary of Frankenstein, directed by James Whale and starring Boris Karloff, originally released on November 21st, 1931. And I have not one, but two outstanding guests joining me in this salutation. First up, I'm going to share an in-depth conversation I had with David Skull, a highly respected horror film historian, creator of several documentaries and bonus features for Universal Home Video's classic monster titles, and the author of numerous books, including The Monster Show, A Cultural History of Horror, and Screams of Reason, Mad Science and Modern Culture. Stick around, because immediately following that chat with David, we're going to hear from none other than Sarah Karloff, daughter of the legendary movie actor, who will share treasured memories of her father and tap into why Boris is the indispensable engine that powers Frankenstein. So lots of treats without any tricks in this episode. Stay tuned for plenty of fun and fascinating conversation as we dissect why Frankenstein is worth celebrating all these years later, its cultural impact and legacy, how it stood the test of time, and what we can learn from this milestone 1931 film nine decades later. But before we stuff ourselves with Halloween ear candy, let's do the cinephile equivalent of eating our vegetables, shall we? Let's learn more about the who, what, where, when, why, and how behind the making of Frankenstein per Wikipedia. Frankenstein is a 1931 American pre-code science fiction horror film directed by James Whale, produced by Carl Lemley Jr., and adapted from a 1927 play by Peggy Webling, which in turn was based on Mary Shelley's 1818 novel, Frankenstein, also called The Modern Prometheus. The Webling play was adapted by John L. Balderston, and the screenplay was written by Francis Edward Farrago and Garrett Fort, with uncredited contributions from Robert Florey and John Russell. Frankenstein stars Colin Clive as Henry Frankenstein, an obsessed scientist who digs up corpses with his assistant to assemble a living being from body parts. The resulting creature, often known as Frankenstein's monster, is portrayed by Boris Karloff. The makeup for the monster was provided by Jack Pierce. Alongside Clive and Karloff, the film's cast also includes Mae Clark, John Bowles, Dwight Fry, and Edward Van Sloan. Produced and distributed by Universal Pictures, Frankenstein was a commercial success upon release, earning over $12 million in grosses against a $262,000 budget and was generally well-received by both critics and audiences. It spawned several sequels and spin-offs and has had a significant impact on pop culture with the imagery of a maniacal mad scientist and a subservient hunchbacked assistant, often referred to as Igor, as well as the film's depiction of the Frankenstein's monster, of course, becoming iconic. 
1991, the United States Library of Congress selected Frankenstein for preservation in the National Film Registry as being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. In its first list of the 100 Greatest American Films of All Time, published in 1998, the American Film Institute ranked Frankenstein number 87. The film places number 14 on Rotten Tomatoes' list of the 200 greatest horror movies of all time, and currently Frankenstein commands a perfect 100% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, earning an average critical score of 8.7 out of 10. To set the proper spooky mood, let's take a moment and listen to the re-release trailer for Frankenstein. When this dead hand moves, the monster created by a man they called Mad is turned loose to strike terror into the hearts of men. <laughs> to shock women into uncontrolled hysteria. Elizabeth! To prey upon the innocence of children. This is the story you've heard about, talked about. The spine-tingling, blood-chilling story that stuns your emotions. Frankenstein. Don't touch that! Okay, if you've never seen the 1931 Frankenstein, you still probably know the story and how it ends because, let's face it, this myth is practically implanted in our consciousness at birth. But do yourself a favor, and me too, if you've never sat down and actually screened Frankenstein from 1931, you owe it to yourself to give it a watch before proceeding any further with this podcast. Trust me, it will enrich the entire experience because to appreciate the artistry at work, including Karloff's unforgettable performance, Jack Pierce's masterful makeup skills, and the director James Whale's vision, you've got to invest your eyeballs with an initial viewing. It's just how it works. So it's a quick watch. It's only about 71 minutes, and you'll be glad you took this step. If not, Wilson, we've warned you. The curtain rises on our first guest, every Monster Kid's best friend, David Skull. Let's say hello to David Skall, a film historian, horror movie scholar, and author of the books The Monster Show, A Cultural History of Horror, V is for Vampire, The A to Z Guide to Everything Undead, and most recently, Fright Films, published in 2020. David is also famous for helping to create and serve as an on-screen commentator for several of my favorite horror-themed documentaries and bonus features that appear on Universal DVDs and Blu-rays, including, for example, The Frankenstein Files, How Hollywood Made a Monster, Bud Abbott and Lou Costello Meet the Monsters, and Monster by Moonlight, The Immortal Saga of the Wolfman. David, we're thrilled to have you join us here on Cineversary. Thanks for taking the time to talk with me today about Frankenstein. Well, thank you. I'm getting a lot of requests like this. Uh, it is the 90th anniversary of uh, Frankenstein and Dracula, uh, 1931. And 
it uh, these two films really kind of changed uh, popular culture forever. So I'm not surprised at all that people are people still want to talk about it. Uh, they're films that when people see them, they never forget them. They uh, they do have staying power in the imagination. Certainly, they're they're famous beyond the movies. People who've never seen these uh, universal classics know who these characters are. You know, they know them through um, advertising and communications and and imitations and and uh, ripoffs and and everything else. They 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 have just seeped into every possible nook and cranny of popular culture. No question about that. So let's go back in the Wayback Machine, David. When and where did you first see the 1931 Frankenstein? And tell us why this movie is important to you. I had to wait uh, for a long time when I was a kid. Um, I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. And when I first discovered uh, these, these movies through the monster magazines, famous monsters of filmland, I was just absolutely fascinated by them. They weren't being shown on Cleveland television. And there was this kind of blackout for a a, a period of years. And it was really about six years from the time I knew about these films and was, you know, was devouring the photos and the synopses and the the commentary. I figured they had to be the greatest movies ever made. Um, I built up uh, quite an anticipation and I finally saw them together theatrically in a 1968 uh, Revival House screening in Cleveland in 35 meter on the big screen. And it was a, a revelation. Uh, Frankenstein is the superior film. It's uh, technically fascinating to see how much um, the technology in Hollywood advanced in the space of less than one year. And Dracula came out... Uh, in uh, February of 1931, and Frankenstein started leaking out to some cinemas around Thanksgiving. I remember there was an unfortunate ad in a uh, Detroit paper that <laughs> wrapped a, a, the image of a turkey around, you know, Universal's Frankenstein. <laughs> yeah, not exactly b- uh, bedfellows or peas in a pod, right? <laughs> no, but that that was uh, one of the. I didn't see that again, and mm-hmm. most places it opened um, in December. And so it was uh, a Christmas present to the imagination. And mm. uh, we're still uh, reaping the rewards. Yeah. So again, why is the movie relevant, resonant, or important to you? I mean, is this your favorite of the Universal cycle, for example? Well, it's really up there. A lot of people think Bride of Frankenstein uh, is the superior film. Mm-hmm. And uh, I tend to agree with them. Um, uh, James Whale uh, didn't want to do a sequel to it. But the uh, the original film is uh it's it's spare and fascinating and and uh the performance by Karloff is just one of the most indelible things uh hollywood has ever put on the screen this is the very dawn of talkies mm-hmm. and it's still a silent movie performance Karloff does make sounds but uh, he doesn't have any dialogue in this right and he is as much a silent cinema icon as you know Chaplin's The Little Tramp uh, or Lon Chaney's Phantom of the Opera yes I think all through the 20th century we've had this love-hate relationship with science and technology you know we depend on it and yet we uh, we fear it and we disbelieve it and we end up going back to it mm-hmm. again and again. And I think, you know, the whole Frankenstein uh, mythos, it tells us a lot about the, you know, the struggle between faith and, and, and science, uh, superstition and science, really. Certainly. 
from the time the book was written all through the 19th century, all through the 20th century. This story is now in its third century. Mm -hmm. it's, it's really a modern myth. I would go so far as to say that the operative creation myth of modern times is not Darwin or Genesis, it's Frankenstein. Interesting. Yeah, that's hard to argue against just in terms of how it's so embedded in pop culture as well as just prevailing thought of today. Yeah, I'd have to ruminate on that a while, but I can't debate you on that. That is uh, an interesting theory that I think holds a lot of water. It's there. I mean, there are mythic underpinnings to uh, everything in popular culture. Mm -hmm. you know, if you take a kind of a longer anthropological look at how we behave with the movies, we're dealing with myth. You know, movie stars, celebrities, yeah. they are quintessential shapeshifters like something out of ancient mythology. Mm. Uh, and we, as Americans, we have this shape-shifting thing, you know, kind of hard-baked into our psyches. We're told from, you know, the earliest age that uh, as Americans, we can be anything or anyone we want. Mm -hmm. Movie stars do that, and cinema does it. And uh, so we enjoy, you know, Frankenstein and the rest of the monster films on a superficial story level, but they're really engaging us uh, much, much more deeply. No, that's totally true. I can certainly feel that. You know, real quickly, my recollection of first seeing this movie, if you were curious, I was younger and my initial view was in 1981 when this was shown on the program locally in my market here called Son of Svenguli. So Son of Svenguli was the precursor to today's Svenguli, same, same actor, Rich Coase. Um, but he didn't change his name to Sven Gulli proper until years later. So 1981, that would have been the 50th anniversary of Frankenstein. And he did a special tribute uh, commemorating the movie at that time. So that would have been my first full viewing of it. And I just remember Sven Gulli's show. It just introduced me to a lot of classic horror cinema, really wet my whistle as far as this genre goes. And I had seen bits and pieces of the 1931 film as a younger child, like on a local shock theater show called Creature Feature, which was on WGN Channel 9 in my area. Uh, but it wasn't until that complete watch in 1981 that made me a lifelong fan of this film and the Frankenstein monster as well. And it's just so interesting in terms of examining how the character and the movie resonates today. I think, you know, the creature remains embedded in our consciousness and is still capable of evoking pathos and empathy and awe in the viewer. And tell me if you disagree, but the narrative is decidedly more focused on the states and fates of, let's say, Henry, Elizabeth, and their friends and family. But it's Frankenstein, the monster himself, that audiences really only care about and identify with, who isn't even shown until midway through the picture, right? So it's just it's such an interesting phenomenon that the intentions of the filmmakers are, of course, to bring the story to life, adapt it in a different way from the novel. But because the, the idea of a monster movie, which was preceded by Dracula only, really, in terms of the modern classic age at that time, it's almost like maybe they had to not hedge their bets, but make sure they invested a lot of narrative in the human non-Frankenstein characters, right? The Universal film was, was a far cry from from Mary Shelley, there it kind of echoes distantly uh, the Mary Shelley novel, uh, which had been adapted for the stage uh, a number of times. And uh, the Universal film was based on a, uh, a play that had been done in England. 
and uh, was scheduled for Broadway, but Universal uh, snatched up the rights because they wanted to follow up on Dracula as quickly as possible. That's right. Mary Shelley's monster, the biggest difference is that it is a very loquacious monster. Right. It learns to uh, to speak and to read and uh, and it reads, um, uh, you know, philosophy, Voltaire, and engages in some of the, you know, mm. the biggest philosophical debates of, of its time. I don't know where the monster learns to be able to read French, but he does that as well. <laughs> right. But the idea of a being created out of pieces of corpses and brought to life and then abandoned is the one through line sure. that we have. The idea of Frankenstein making a kind of a Faustian bargain with the devil who, who does not appear, but he um, gets more than he bargained for mm. and is brought down by his presumption. In fact, that was one of the names of the earliest uh, stage adaptations was called Presumption or the Fate of Frankenstein. Is that right? Wow. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting in terms of examining how and why this film is worth celebrating 90 years later and why it still matters, how it stood the test of time. I think that despite losing its shock value long ago, I mean, it's not a scary film by modern audience standards. It appears relatively quaint today, perhaps, but the 1931 Frankenstein, David, it commands respect and admiration thanks to its impressive reputation as a groundbreaking work of horror cinema. you got to put yourself in the context of 1931, right? So fans and students of classic film venerate the picture today because it was the first of its kind in many ways proving extremely controversial and horrifying 90 years ago with things like, you know, imagery of grave robbing, hanged bodies, cadavers on medical carts, hypodermic needles, the drowned child, the hulking monstrosity, blasphemous lines like, in the name of God, now I know what it feels like to be God. I mean, these are all disturbing elements, right, that contributed to the movie being censored in some communities, from what I gathered. And also censored upon reissue. Yeah, and uh, one of the most satisfying things that uh, I accomplished during the my, my work with Universal on the first uh, you know DVD mm-hmm. was smuggling that line in the name of God. Now I know what it feels like to be God back into the film. Wow! It hadn't been heard you know since the 1930s, and it was uh, removed. The, the The Catholic Church and its Legion of Decency was very powerful in the 1930s. And even though this is pre-code, right? This is 31 before they really enforced the code fully in like, let's say 34. There was a code. It, it was it was kind of just winked at, mm-hmm. but they still had to deal with the church and with um, industry censors who could be very arbitrary in what they were doing. But to satisfy the church, they had to add a, uh, a prologue in which Edward Van Sloan, as Frankenstein's mentor, Dr. Waldman, comes out and introduces himself and assures us that this story has a moral lesson and that we are all God-fearing people and this is to put people at ease. Mr. Carl Emily feels it would be a little unkind to present this picture without just a word of friendly warning. We are about to unfold the story of Frankenstein, a man of science who sought to create a man after his own image, without reckoning upon God. It is one of the strangest tales ever told. It deals with the two great mysteries of creation, life and death. I think it will thrill you. It may shock you. It might even horrify you. So if any of you feel that you do not care to subject your nerves to such a strain, 
Now's your chance to... Uh, well, we've warned you. And they uh, apparently did put the church at ease. They didn't make any complaints about the film after. But it's so interesting because it's almost like William Castle showmanship on a PR scale. Like, well, how brilliant is that? Because it sets your expectations if you're a 1931 moviegoer. Holy crap, this guy just came out and, and warned me, like, maybe I should leave. <laughs> So I'm sure a lot of people were pretty unsettled right from the start. And from what I gathered in the research, there were people who fled theaters, movie theaters, in abject terror, like when the monster appeared. So again, very different times, but this would have been groundbreaking just in terms of its pure horror elements. We are so familiar with that uh, that face and that makeup of, of Karloff. We, we can never experience the reaction of the audiences of the time. And it's a paradoxical image. All monsters are paradoxes. They combine aspects of impossible combinations. They're either part human and part animal, or they're Mm -hmm. part man and part machine. And the Karloff monster is like that because it it looks machine-tooled. It's very angular. That's squared off head. And it looks robotic. Uh, Robots were very much in the public imagination in the late 20s and early 30s. And yet it's uh, something creepier. It's like a robot combined with an ape with the overhanging uh, simian kind of brow. Yes, I could see that. Mm -hmm. The long arms protruding from the coat. And it's disturbing because uh, we don't know quite how to process it. It catches us off guard. I was going to ask you to what extent Frankenstein perhaps is given extra prestige because it was released in 1931, which, if you think about it, it's one of the most seminal years in horror movie history, right? Because you have Dracula, you have M, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and Frankenstein all in 1931. David, is that year the best or perhaps the most important year ever in horror cinema, or at least classic horror cinema? Oh, yes. And I would add, uh, you know, Todd Browning's Freaks which was produced in 1931, uh, released early the next year. Mm. But in these films, we get all the building blocks of uh, almost every kind of horror movie that ever uh, you know came down the path since. The monster of science, the Frankenstein monster, the monster of, of ancient superstition, the, the vampire Dracula, the uh, two-faced monster, uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Mm-hmm. Um, and that formula, of course, appended itself to the uh, the werewolf films and uh, and Universal's The Wolfman. And of course, there's the Mad Doctor who pops up here and there, and he's been with us ever since. And uh, every once in a while, gets a you know shot in the arm uh, from a character like Hannibal Lecter. Mm. And then, and then there's the final building block in 1931 is the freak, the being that challenges our uh, sense of what the normal boundaries and you know shape of being a human being is is and uh, those elements in combination they've just been stirred together in so many different ways and you know it's like someone once said of, of shakespeare you know he only had about seven plots everything is discovered again but it's not really new mm-hmm. horror is it's kind of a simple recipe but you can do so many variations with it. Right. But uh, 1931 was a real sea change in the way Hollywood uh, approached fantastic filmmaking. Mm-hmm. Basically, there was no fantastic filmmaking. In Europe, the supernatural, and the grotesque and the bizarre and, and the impossible was part of the cinema from the very, very beginning. But in the American cinema, there were terrifying characters and some spooky movies, but there weren't any real spooks. Mm-hmm. 
everything had to be explained away. You know, uh, Hollywood producers felt that audiences wouldn't buy these completely otherworldly premises. So when Universal took a chance on Dracula, and they were really nervous because uh, this wasn't going to be explained away as you know, a, a criminal plot uh, or something. This was a real 500-year-old demon from hell. And the Frankenstein monster was a, a reanimated corpse and, you know, things that really did not exist in the real world. Would the audience suspend disbelief? And it turned out they did. These films, and Frank, Frankenstein especially, is credited with, you know, saving Universal from bankruptcy. It was the worst year of the Great Depression. People were terrified. There were no social safety nets in 1931. Right. It did seem like the world was falling apart. And uh, so this new kind of fear-based entertainment appeared and was like a lightning rod for all the anxieties mm. and real-world terrors that were uh, you know, just in the air. And I don't think if these films had been made in a, at another time, mm -hmm. they would have had the, the cultural staying power. I mean, they, they really just burrowed into us and have never left. It's so fascinating to think, as you were just laying the case, that films like Dracula and Frankenstein, they lay the groundwork for what's to come in terms of audience acceptance and hunger and appreciation for modern horror of the time. But Frankenstein is also a film that it rewards viewers. You can easily spot the earlier films that influenced it and the subsequent works that it inspired. For example, attentive cinephiles can identify the expressionistic, surrealistic, nightmarish sets of, let's say, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari and many of the sets in Frankenstein. You can maybe look and see remnants of the monster character in Der Gollum, the old German folktale ad adaptation from years earlier. The high contrast lighting of, let's say, Nosferatu from 1922. And, of course, the laboratory and electrical gadgets and robot Maria of the movie Metropolis from 27 as possible influences on Frankenstein. And these works of German Expressionism and that movement's surreal architectural style is obvious, right, in the twisting and contorted architecture of the laboratory and, you know, its geometrically wonky adjacent rooms and skewed staircase. On this most recent watch, I really paid attention to that. German Expressionism had everything to do with the, the birth of Hollywood horror. And Expressionism as an art form came out of uh, World War One. It was a, uh, those prototype uh, uh, films, prototype horror films like uh, Caligari and Nosferatu, they weren't uh, escapist entertainment. No. They were uh, making serious, uh, you know, artistic statements. They were both anti-war films in their own way. And uh, they were very much engaged in the world. Hollywood took a somewhat more mercenary, you know, approach to it. But you can see that James Whale was, um, he was the second director assigned to it. Robert Flory, a Frenchman who uh, was also very influenced by Expressionism, had a rather different conception of Frankenstein. And mm -hmm. the monster would not have had any pathos. This was the part that was offered to Bela Lugosi. He even did a test makeup. He just bridled at it. He said, I'm an actor, not a scarecrow. Although from what I understand, I think the part was taken away from him. Like they kind of determined, right, that he wasn't the right man for the job. 
we don't know all the um, the details of it. Sometimes Lugosi said he found Karloff to uh, appease Universal. That that is not true. Whale was had a very different sensibility. He also he served in World War One. Almost all of the artists and technicians, and especially the ones who came from Europe in the early 30s, they had deep experience with uh, you know the Great War. Aspects of it just keep cropping up everywhere. But the that uh, figure in the Conrad Veidt play, the somnambulist in the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, is absolutely a seminal, iconic figure. And it's very, very much like the silhouette of the Frankenstein monster. Sure. Especially in that scene where he breaks into the bedroom of the bride-in-waiting toward the end of the movie. Oh, yes. You can juxtapose scenes from Caligari and Nosferatu and and the golem with uh, any number of uh, you know Hollywood horror films, you you can see exactly where the inspiration came from. But Whale was very interesting. He had some experience on stage, uh, Grand Guignol horror plays. He was a serious actor and uh, a director. He was a a stage designer too. I think he had a lot to do with the design of the makeup for Karloff. Interesting. Okay. Uh, I described it earlier as having this kind of machine tooled look. Mm-hmm. Well, th- that one of the dominant design categories of the twenties and thirties was uh, you know art moderne or art deco. Think of all those monumental sculptures that appeared. The Frankenstein monster has a lot of that visual aspect going for it, but it's not heroic. It's not, it, I described it as a hood ornament for a wrecked economy. Jack Pierce, the, uh, the makeup artist who mm-hmm. had been a protege of uh, Lon Chaney Sr., probably would have worked with Chaney had Chaney played you know, Dracula and Frankenstein. Both Lugosi and Karloff were called the new Lon Chaney in uh, ads in 1931. Cheney was, of course, one of the biggest stars of the silent era, and uh, Universal wanted him to help inaugurate their horror franchise. They didn't think it was a franchise at the time, but they were smart enough to, uh, you know, to do the sequels and really create a, uh, a brand, you know, for themselves in a way that other studios just didn't do. I love the talk about James Whale. If we could just go back to that for a moment, because on this most recent rewatch, I really paid more attention to how and why James Whale, in my opinion, is the ideal director for Frankenstein. And uh, if you'll indulge me, I want to just give you a few observations and you can, of course, chime in and and I'm curious to hear what you think. But I was struck this time around by how efficient and streamlined the story is. The creation scene occurs it's only 14 minutes into the movie with the monster introduced at roughly the midway point. Mm-hmm. There are a handful of frivolous scenes that arguably could have been cut, but the economy of storytelling to me anyway is evident. You have a lot of verticality of many compositions, David, which emphasize you know tall ceilings, such as in the lecture hall. You think of Henry's laboratory, the foyer of his mansion, uh, the room where the monster reaches out to the light above the Baron's house, towering high structures like the laboratory tower, the staircase, and the windmill. You also have overhead camera shots that can make the characters appear small in a large surrounding environment. And from what I understand, it's a 1.20 to 1 aspect ratio, which kind of benefits these vertical designs, right? And then you think about the, the moving camera choices that Whale and his team make. You've got the panning across the attendees in the graveyard in the very first shot. The tracking camera as it follows Henry and his bride across walls and between rooms. The emotionally powerful, unbroken tracking shot of the woodcutter carrying his dead daughter through the streets of Goldstadt. 
And then, of course, the curious use of close-ups by Whale. The scene introducing Elizabeth and Victor, which features, strangely, four consecutive close-ups. And, of course, most famously, the introduction of the monster via three advancing close-ups. And as we talked about that decision, maybe it wasn't Wales, maybe it was imposed upon him by the studio, but the decision to issue the warning at the start of the movie, which peculiarly features the actor Edward Van Sloan standing on a theater stage and addressing an invisible audience without looking directly at the camera, is another curious choice here. But ultimately, you could make a claim that Whale is the horror genre's best or most influential director. And what do you have to consider that evidence-wise? Well, The Invisible Man, The Bride of Frankenstein, The Old Dark House, and of course, the original Frankenstein. What's your assessment here? Do you agree to some extent that he is the best or maybe most influential director of the genre? Oh, absolutely. He was part of a mass migration to Hollywood from the East Coast theater and from uh, you know the West End in England. Most of the talent in Hollywood in the 1920s did not have formal theatrical training. Uh-huh. The talkies meant uh, we had to have people who knew how to speak and people who knew how to direct people who knew how to speak. So Will was part of that migration. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, you know, the creation scene is highly theatrical. Henry Frankenstein invites his guests to sit before he's up, up, up on a raised platform and they're seated as if they're an audience. Quite a good scene, isn't it? One man crazy, three very sane spectators. Spectators, right. And you have this big spectacle with, you know, the equivalent of flying scenery rising up and down and the verticality of that. My first trip to London, where I was able to see a lot of theater in those old vintage playhouses in the West End, I was struck by how tall the prosceniums were. Hmm. It was not what I, I had never seen this before. They did allow for scenery to really rise, even even dwarf the actors. That was a milieu that Whale certainly came out of. Makes sense, yeah. I certainly want to talk about ways that Frankenstein was influential on cinema and pop culture. Was this the first of its kind movie in any way? And what trends did it set, David? In your book, Fright Favorites, you call the 1931 Frankenstein the most imitated monster movie ever made. And it's hard to argue otherwise because the movie introduces so many concepts, conventions, and what would become, I guess, cliches to the horror genre, from the design and scope of the mad scientist laboratory to, I guess, the trope of an angry torch-wielding mob, to the notion of a sympathetic screen monster that audiences can identify with, even to the character of the disfigured assistant. It's not just the most imitated monster movie ever made. It may be one of the most imitated movies of all time. In fact, I did a little bit of homework here and just my own cursory kind of count. I tallied at least 120 instances of Frankenstein being made for the big or small screen with only three adaptations, all silent, preceding the 1931 version. So that's a lot. I mean, arguably Dracula and vampire stories have been adapted more. But next to Dracula, can you think of a tale, a narrative that has been adapted for more works of film and television than any other monster or fantastical creation for that matter? No, and when you add the films that inspire overreaching science and the Faustian bargains and the obsessed scientist with a mad dream getting more than he um, ever bargained for, it's enormous. I mean, very large swath of uh, you know, the science fiction genre. It's funny, you know, the, these films were B pictures when they came out. Mm-hmm. You didn't see the titles of these films in standard movie history books until oh the seventies or. 
or 80s. I mean, just go look at the indexes and try to find uh, Karloff, Lugosi, Whale, Browning. Uh, they, they, they're just not there. And yet these films, had they not been made, the arc of Hollywood's history would have just been enormously changed. Totally agree. Just think of all of the uh, the other cycles of films. Had the, you know, the horror cycle of the 30s and 40s not happened the way they happened, mm. the science fiction cycle of films in the 50s wouldn't have happened. And uh, all of the amazing talent in Hollywood that got its uh, earliest inspiration from uh, these movies might have done something else. No question. You know, I was part of that generation of monster kids who uh, we were the first generation to, to really try to take media into our own hands, even if it was with eight millimeter movie cameras and, you know, our own homemade versions of Dracula and Frankenstein. And uh, some of us turned out to be Steven Spielberg. It's very striking how many of the biggest names in Hollywood affectionately recall their baptism in the movies, you know, owe it to the universal monster tradition. I recall watching the great uh, Long Strange Trip It's Been extended documentary on Amazon Prime. I saw it about the Grateful Dead. And one of the very first things Jerry Garcia says is how he was inspired from an early young age after he watched Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. It's like one of the first things he says that speaks to exactly what you're talking about. Just dovetailing back to talking about ways that Frankenstein was influential on pop culture or cinema, this is regarded as the most important, iconic, and instantly identifiable creature design in movie history. Even today, it seems like children are sprung from the womb with the seemingly innate ability, David, to instantly recognize the Frankenstein monster and that speaks to the lasting impact of the inspired makeup work by Jack Pierce, as well as the unforgettable performance by Boris Karloff. But so that phenomenon of just everybody knows who and what Frankenstein is, seemingly from birth, is incredible to me. Undoubtedly, the most impressive sequence in the movie, the creation scene, the, the most memorable set piece, the laboratory equipped with all manner of eye-catching electrical apparatus. It inspired so many mad scientist milieus to come, and it set the design template for what a monster-making workshop should look like. And, of course, the film's most famous line, its most infamous, is that, uh, now what I know it feels like to be God, but its most famous line really is, it's alive. It's alive. And, and that's become firmly entrenched in the fabric of pop culture. If you ever watch an episode of the great stop-motion animation show Robot Chicken, that's the line of the, the opening every single time. So... Just one more example of how it's an infinitely quotable movie as well. It's, it's alive for sure, and it's a soundbite that uh, pops up in some of the uh, oddest places, uh, often for a comedic effect or satirical effect. Yeah, any 10-year-old kid can imitate the classic Universal monsters, whether they've uh, ever seen, and they probably have not never seen the original movies, but the, the characters have been just amplified through popular culture and advertising mm -hmm. and parodies and imitations and Halloween costumes and everything else. They are just there. They're just part of the air we breathe. Totally. Just one more word on influence. You think about how the 1931 Frankenstein, it sets the prototype for an imaginary, let's say, amalgamated European setting, not anchored in any particular year or era as the backdrop to most of its monster movies of the 30s and 40s. This Goldstadt city where the story occurs, it doesn't exist in the real world, but the word itself and the dress and the cultural celebrating of the townspeople 
I guess it suggests somewhere maybe in Germany, even though many of its citizens have British accents and there's some contrasting fashions and things like that. And then you see it again and again in so many subsequent universal horror movies, you know, from Bride of Frankenstein to The Wolfman to etc., where it's just this kind of generic universal European-esque setting, right? It's very hard to figure out where a number of these films are supposed to be uh, taking place or when. Mm -hmm. Uh, Frankenstein, you know, it's got aspects of it that look almost uh, medieval. And yet, you know, the characters wear uh, wristwatches and... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and uh, there was all this up-to-date talk about cosmic rays and the snap, crackle, scream electrical equipment, and uh, which is very modern. It just never stops with universal horror films. In, in some of them, you know, uh, the British Isles seem actually connected somehow to Europe, <laughs> or at least in, in right that meets the Wolfman. You can take a horse wagon from Wales to an imaginary Germanic kind of country called uh, Vesaria. Yes, geographically challenged to say the least, but boy, a lot of fun. <laughs> and after a while, they they just they stopped even naming where these things supposed to be taking place. It right. was just you know there were, there was a lot of lederhosen usually. Mm-hmm. Not a lot of thought about continuity or rewatchability. No, no, no. Dracula was like that too. When is this supposed to be taking place? There are modern cars and this is supposed to be modern London. And yet the overall effect of it is very Victorian. But it makes it evergreen. It gives it a fairy tale quality that that keeps it fresh and, and yeah, kind of it, universal. It's a never, never dreamland mm-hmm. that uh, serves it well. And a lot of it uh, you know, comes from just new creative teams came in and they weren't trying to create a coherent, consistent kind of you know, kind of universe. They didn't have a roadmap for, you know, a Marvel universe for the monsters. They just kept going what seemed to have worked before and it's almost like uh, the the oral tradition of folklore where every time something is uh, retold or embellished um, each teller adds something new right the bigger fish story that's how myth works and that's why these are mythic and they weren't just one-off movies it's it's possible you know frankenstein could have been made in a by a different studio at a different time with different performers and it would have been a one-off phenomenon and uh, would not have had the extraordinary you know impact it has no it's interesting to ruminate on any serious discussion of the 1931 frankenstein or the novel for that matter but we're focusing on the movie should cover at least briefly themes messages or morals explored so i just very briefly want to kind of go over these there's some obvious ones we don't have to belabor the point on man's hubristic attempt to defy the laws of nature by you know by passing the organic means of creation, pursuing an unnatural and artificial form of creation. We can agree. I mean, that's a major theme. Science run amok, man working contrary to the divine, dangers of playing God. There's also the creator abandoning his creation, which could be a veiled statement on the indifference of God or maybe a higher power to our suffering, the cruel nature of existence, maybe even a little subtextual nod to child abuse and neglect caused by an unkind and irresponsible parent. You recall how when the monster initially sees his creator, he extends his hands, right, in a symbolic plea for compassion, sympathy, and approval. But what does Dr. Frankenstein do? He turns a cold shoulder to the monster, kind of denying his paternity, as was phrased by film scholar Glenn Erickson, which I thought was an interesting reading into the movie. What do you identify as major themes here that you'd like to briefly touch on? Well, you nailed them all, and there are a multitude of themes 
And just as there is a multitude of literary and film criticism about the, the Frankenstein story that isn't always consistent, but it shows how what, what, it, what an iceberg under the surface there is. The little familiar story about Henry Frankenstein or Victor Frankenstein making the monster and uh, bringing it to life and abandoning it and it coming back to destroy him is just the little tip of the iceberg. And then you've got this huge cultural mass of ice, you know, enough to sink many, many Titanics that keeps us interested. These stories just have depths that have not been fully plumbed and, and probably never will be fully plumbed. They're mysterious. They're about, uh, you know, the biggest mysteries in the universe. They're about life and death and the possibility of the afterlife. And can man play God? Is man getting a little too big for his britches? You know, mm-hmm. And it just won't ever stop. And you can, you can do a, a new adaptation of the Frankenstein story and emphasize any one of these sure these aspects and it'll still it'll work the possibilities are endless like this most recent time watching it i was really struck by what emerged to me as a major theme that i overlooked or didn't appreciate fully earlier and that is nature versus nurture you think about the the monster's childlike naivete and inexperience and the monster demonstrates that humans are born innocent but influenced and corrupted by their environment the frankenstein monster he's not a mindless killing machine per se he's the victim of scientific experimentation the victim of torture and abuse at the hands of Fritz. And, you know, he's also the recipient of an abnormal brain. And all these things are not his fault. So this whole nurture versus nature thing, I think, is also important. That was uh, part of a great philosophical debate at Mary Shelley's time, mm-hmm. you know, at the end of the, the Enlightenment. And uh, na- that's where nature versus nurture came from, the idea of the noble savage and that we are shaped by the uh, world we are bo- born into and are inherently good and have, you know, in- inherent potential and nobility. And then it all goes wrong. <laughs> as it did for the Frankenstein monster. Yes. One theme that kind of falls flat for me, I think it was intended in 1931 at least, but maybe reading further into it, but the responsibility of the greater community to ensure that justice is done and to, I guess, send a collective message that immorality and violating community standards will not be tolerated. And that's exemplified in the lynch mob mentality, uh, the quick impulse for street justice, which, of course, in 2021, it can be easily criticized and dismissed. But that was probably a theme that would have resonated among 1931 audiences, right, who, who might have been incensed by, what, the growing concept of evolution versus creationism, the dangers of advancing technology and industrialism. You know, it's probably easy for moviegoers at the time of this film's release to kind of sympathize with the angry mob more. They could. And, you know, there were reviews of the time that compared the hunting down of the monster to, you know, a Georgia lynch mob and... Mm. Lynchings were, in 1931, still very much a uh, part of what was going on. Yeah, disturbing. These characters are infinitely adaptable, Mm -hmm. Frankenstein and Dracula. You almost have to talk about them together because they are kind of joined at the hip in their history. And when one is produced by a, a theater company, the other one is sure to come along right away. And the same thing happens with movie companies. And think of all the times that Dracula and Frankenstein have been exploited together by uh, Universal and then Hammer and Francis Coppola and 
It's a winning combination. You know, there's a reason so many people get their start in film industry. You know, some of the greatest directors, you know, started out with humble horror movies because it's such a dependable, sturdy genre. It never goes away. It always makes money. It's a shrewd place to um, make your entry into the entertainment business. You're probably not going to lose money for anybody, and uh, that will keep you instead. Well, thank goodness that Carl Emley Jr. uh, convinced his father and the studio to take a chance on these movies, and here we are 90 years later talking about them. This is a 90th birthday celebration, of course, and birthdays are all about getting presents, except I always contend that it's the fans who continue to get the gifts from these movies. So if I were to ask you, David, what is this movie's greatest gift to viewers, what would you say? It is the whole transformed landscape of popular culture as we know it today. You think of all the things that wouldn't have happened if Frankenstein hadn't come down the pike in 1931. It's really kind of breathtaking, the influence this film had the other kinds of filmmaking it inspired. And it's a gift that keeps giving. It renews itself. I used to, you know, be one of these people who complained about Frankenstein and Dracula never being given their due as stories. Uh, Mary Shelley being thrown out the window or Bram Stoker being thrown out the window. And in the time I've been, you know, studying these films and just immersing myself in them, I've come to a completely different appreciation. They stay alive in their changes. They are shape-shifting. This is how they stay immortal. Hmm. They change. They they find new audiences. They change their stripes. They're terrifying in one cycle, and they are uh, sympathetic, you know, in another. And and sometimes combinations of the two, or they become uh, figures of comedy. And they work. So then the you know the pendulum swing happens again, and they're recombined in some other some other fashion. However, you know, successful or unsuccessful a, a new adaptation of Frankenstein is going to be, it's keeping the central myth alive. That's a gift. I'll take it. I love your theory about the shape-shifting, which you mentioned earlier as well, which I completely buy into. For my part, David, I think Frankenstein's greatest gift is that it bestowed on the world the most instantly identifiable and beloved monster of all time. Seriously, if you were to rank the planet's most famous, treasured, and merchandised monsters, I think Frankenstein would come to the top of most people's lists. Like King Kong, he's a sympathetic character who appeals to all ages and transcends all cultures. Karloff's unforgettable performance and Jack Pierce's brilliant makeup are the key ingredients at work, but the monster is greater than the sum of his parts, no pun intended there. He's the default poster child for monsterdom everywhere and the crown jewel character in the universal horror cycle, spawning more sequels, remakes, imitators, and spoofs than any other horror icon other than Dracula. And even though this creature is no longer frightening, let's say, He brings us back to our childhoods, like the youngish age when we first watched the film and a simpler time when monochromatic movies ruled the world. So for me, that's a greatest gift that just keeps on giving. It is. He takes us back to our childhood, I think, because the character, as portrayed by Boris Karloff, is childlike. Karloff himself said uh, in almost every interview he gave about the film that children were his, uh, his best audiences. They instinctively understood that the monster was misunderstood. 
He's just a remarkable, remarkable actor. We think of that makeup as being this extraordinarily elaborate thing, but it just exaggerated Karloff's natural features. That's right. Half the battle is casting the right person in that role, and Whale was you know, instrumental in, in identifying what Karloff had physically to bring to it. And he had full facial expression with it. He wasn't inhibited. Uh, as an actor, we don't know exactly what you know the test makeup for Lugosi looked like, but I doubt that it would have let the actor out. You get a little sliver of it in Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman, where Lugosi is ultimately cast as the monster, but who's to say the makeup would have been the same? Nevertheless, I mean, you just can't duplicate what Karloff gives here. Not at all. When Whale introduced himself to Karloff, he said to him in the commissary at Universal, your face has fascinating possibilities. And we've been fascinated ever since. So well put. David, what are you currently working on that listeners should check out? Any new books or projects of note? Oh, well, uh, my book, Fright Favorites, for uh, Turner Classic Movies, which is subtitled 31 Films to Haunt Your Halloween and Beyond, isn't anchored 21 years, so it's getting its second run around the block this year. Fantastic book. I can totally vouch for it. It's a great read. It's a lot of fun. I'm working about, on a book about horror and politics. I got the idea for about four years ago, and I've just been so uh, appalled and amazed by everything that's transpired politically in this country that it's finally time for me to do something with it. And we'll see where this goes. It may be my own mad experiment, and uh, it won't make everybody happy, but I'm going to give it a go. The name of the book is I Hear America Screaming. The Politics of Horror. That is an attention-getting title in the least, so you've already piqued my interest, sir. Sign me up. Thank you. Any possibility of seeing a David Skull uh, on a big or small screen anytime in the future? Uh, Any uh, documentaries, bonus features? I'm in the new documentary about Boris Karloff that's uh, having a theatrical uh, run right now. Fantastic. Uh, It's called Boris Karloff, The Man Behind the Monster. And I'm in the third season of uh, Eli Roth's History of Horror. And that's on where? That's going to be on AMC. The first two, are, they're out. I'm in those as well. Uh, they're out on, uh, on disc now. But the new season is um, upcoming. And it's a very stylishly produced show. That's been a blind spot. I've got to catch up with that series. And I'm so glad you reminded me about it. So we will definitely be looking out for that as well. You sounds like you are a busy guy, David. I just appeared as a guest on Creature Features. I introduced the film The Ghoul with Boris Karloff and uh, Ernest Thesiger, which is worth seeing if you haven't seen it. He snuck away to England right after he made The Mummy and did another film about Egyptology and and that. But uh, I'm on all through it. You can watch it on YouTube. Now I really feel behind the wheel because you've already mentioned a couple things that uh, I'm ashamed to say I've not yet caught. So I've got some catching up to do. And maybe some of our listeners do too. So thank you for alerting us to these different things you're involved with and that are forthcoming. David, I want to thank you again for appearing on Cineversary, taking the time to talk with me extensively about Frankenstein and the year 1931. And happy Halloween season. And you too. People ask me, what are you going to be for Halloween? And uh, my answer is uh, I'm going to be the most terrifying monster of them all. You know, a podcast guest, (laughs) because I don't get to do Halloween. And the great thing about being a podcast guest is the listeners can use their imagination, add costume, scenery, makeup, and special effects as they see fit. So I'm actually judging a couple of Universal Monster costume contests. Wow. 
So you, you've added another feather to the cap. I have, and I, I'm not part of the competition, but I've created my own really nice replica of uh, Lugosi's outfit from 1931. I don't usually wear these things in public, but uh, I'm going to have some fun this year. My pleasure talking to you. Kudos for appearing here, and we really appreciate you and your generous use of time, David. Thank you. Hey, thank you. Take care now. Yes, indeedy. When it comes to horror movie history, you can't do much better than Mr. Skull. My infinite gratitude to David for joining me and paying homage to Frankenstein. Next up, and I'm still pinching myself that this actually happened, we turn our attention to the Man of the Hour's offspring, Boris Karloff's daughter, Sarah. We're delighted to say hello to Sarah Karloff, daughter of the famous film star and preserver of his legacy. Sarah, welcome to Cineversary, and a big thanks for agreeing to appear on our podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure, Eric. Thank you for inviting me to join you. Such a treat. Uh, You've been on my radar for a long time. I thought when we celebrate the 90th birthday of Frankenstein, I'll have to reach out to Sarah and see if she is agreeable. And I'm so glad that you said yes. So thanks again. Thank you. You're more than welcome. So let's go on the Wayback Machine here a little bit, if you're comfortable with the question. But what was it like growing up as the daughter of the world's most famous horror film actor? You know, for instance, was it was it hard to get children to come play at your house because they maybe feared your dad and all of his movies? (laughs) Not at all. My dad could not have been more different than the roles he played. Mm. He was um, a, a gentleman through and through. He was a typical English gentleman. He was soft spoken and kind and thoughtful and very funny. He was absolutely the antithesis of the roles he played. He was um, adored by people who knew him and respected by people with whom he worked. Kids were drawn to him, really. Little Maria in the film Frankenstein came up to him the first time she saw him in full makeup and took his hand and said, can I ride with you in the car? His own persona came through even the thickest and most scary of makeups. Oh, how sweet. That's a great story. I'm sure you have recollections just growing up because you were born, I want to say, right before the release of, was it Son of Frankenstein? Am I mistaken? While they were still shooting. Yeah. Yes. Okay. I okay. was born on my father's 51st birthday, which mm-hmm. was probably the most expensive birthday present he ever got. (laughs) So you didn't have any memories of of seeing him working on the Frankenstein films, but of course he continued to create horror films. Uh, Did you, were you ever uh, privileged to be on set with him uh, with any of his movies? Uh, Not any of his scary, scary movies. Well, my father was really a very modest self-effacing man Mm -hmm. and he never brought his work home he didn't talk about his work he was just so grateful for the roles that he did have an opportunity to play and to be able to keep working in a profession that he really adored and he always said that he was so grateful to the role of Frankenstein for the pivotal difference, the huge difference it made in his life, both personally and professionally. And he was often asked if he minded being typecast. Mm -hmm. And he said, indeed not. Any actor who was lucky enough to be typecast was a very lucky actor indeed. And um, from there, the rest of his career, 
that role made took him from the roles of being a bit part player and an extra player to a star. After being in the business 20 years, he became a star overnight. Mm, absolutely, Sarah. When you think about it, it's really not an overstatement because you consider if he wouldn't have been cast in Frankenstein, Obviously, his career trajectory would have been very different. Maybe he wouldn't have gotten the break that he got with Frankenstein. But just in terms of in the entertainment landscape, what we know as the face of horror, we kind of regard your father's visage as, as that kind of iconic face of horror cinema. The world would be a very different place if your father had not been cast in Frankenstein. I, that's really an amazing thought. And he almost, of course, wasn't. The role would, would have gone to Lon Chaney Sr., Right. Had he not unfortunately died at a very early age, mm -hmm. um, and then it was offered to Bela Lugosi, correct? Yes, um, who turned it down because it was a non-speaking part, and he didn't want to wear all that heavy makeup. And then my father was in the commissary at the same time as James Whale when he became the new director of the film. Mm -hmm. And he felt that my father had an interesting face. And he asked if he would test for the role. And of course, at that point in my father's career, he would test for any role. Uh, he and Jack Pierce, who was head of the makeup department at that time, I worked for two weeks in Jack's laboratory, so to speak, and they came up. Well, it was all Jack's work, of course, but my father took out a denture plate that he had on the side of his a partial plate he had on the side of his mouth, and that caused the indentation on the side of the monster's face. And he added some ideas for the way the eyes might look in the makeup. Uh, but everything else was Jack Pierce's work. And after two weeks, they came up with the makeup and they did the test finally. And the rest is cinema history. It's the greatest right. movie makeup ever for a monster or, or even outside of the monster category. It's just a phenomenal job. But you think about the performance that your father gave. It's just an incredible acting job. And uh, it's a non-speaking role. So he has to do a lot almost in pantomime with physical gestures and even the slightest, subtlest movements of his, his face, his eyes, his mouth. And his hands. That's My true. father used his hands a lot mm -hmm. in his acting. Of course, he'd had a lot of experience in silent films. Frankenstein was his 81st film. And as he said, Incredible. nobody saw the first 80. <laughs> <laughs> Except maybe for Scarface and a few others. Yeah. yeah. But he, um, he was eternally grateful, of course, for mm -hmm. the, that role and the two that followed. And then his career just kept going. And he considered himself a very lucky man to spend his life doing something he was passionate about doing and then be jolly well paid for it. Yeah, that, I think that's what really made your father distinguished among many of his peers is he remained humble and he never took for granted the opportunities that he was given. And he avoided that word of typecasting in terms of letting it haunt him in any way. So that's really to your father's credit. It's 90 years later now. Are you surprised in any way that your father remains the definitive face of the Frankenstein monster for old and new generations alike, as well as the most instantly recognizable horror icon? He's gotten a lot of mileage out of that for decades after decades, but he continues to be right at the top. Well, I think that's due to this wonderful collaboration of talents 
Mm -hmm. Uh, James Whale is the director, the script, of course, the genius work of Jack Pierce, and then my father's interpretation and portrayal of of the monster, which elicited empathy for the creature. My father always said that youngsters understood it. They understood that the creature or monster was the victim and not the perpetrator. Right. And so it was this this marriage of talents and creativity that made the film what it was and his portrayal of the role that made the monster. But you have to give Jack Pierce so much credit because you, you must remember that the camera does not lie. Hmm. And that makeup had to be exact every single day. Sure. And it took four hours to put it on every morning and took three hours to take it off. Arduous, to say the least. (laughs) Yes. Jack said my father had the patience of a horse. And my father wasn't even invited to the premiere of the film. Oh, what's up with that? (laughs) Well, uh, Colin Clive was anticipated to be the star of the film. Mm -hmm. Nobody anticipated the film being the hit that it was. Yeah. And nobody anticipated the monster being the star of the film. And then they had sequels to it. And critics um, often wrote that they felt that Bride of Frankenstein even surpassed the original film. So, uh, and my father felt it was um, a mistake giving the creature speech. Yeah, I read that. But I mm-hmm. think he, I think he was wrong. I think mm. Bride of Frankenstein is a wonderful film. It is irreverent in many of the uh, scenes. I think it has humor. Mm -hmm. Um, I I think it has a bit of everything. It's fascinating to see your father speak in that role, even if it's just for one film. I know he goes mute again in Son of Frankenstein, but no, it's just a a really interesting take on that characterization. And I totally agree. I mean, Bride of Frankenstein is at least the equal of the original if not even better, and such a confluence of of great talents coming together. And it's just so wonderful that your father was able to participate in the first three films in this Universal Frankenstein series that continued to go on after he retired from the role. But again, just the thought of it's 90 years, Sarah, and your father is still the face of horror, not just horror cinema. Just when you think of horror, the first thing that comes to my mind is the face of the Frankenstein monster as your father played it. And he could have been knocked off that perch decades ago by, let's say, I don't know, Vincent Price or whomever. But no, I think that he will remain atop that pedestal for a long time. I do, too. Even though he preferred the word terror mm-hmm. to horror, he felt that horror brought to mind revulsion mm-hmm. and that terror elicited the involvement of the audience, invited the involvement of the audience's imagination, intelligence, participation in the storyline and and in the characters themselves. And he felt that the word horror was blood and guts Mm. dumped in your lap um, for the sake of horror. Mm -hmm. And he felt the terror was more subtle and made one uh, had more suspense and what's coming around the corner or what's under the bed Mm -hmm. and involved the audiences, made them sit on the edge of their chairs and grip their uh, chair arms in anticipation. 
and he far preferred the word of terror to horror. Yeah, it's telling and, that he appears later as the host of a show called Thriller, not a host yes. of a show called Horror or something like that. That's so, right. You know, I see what your point is there, and I could see your father's appreciation for the distinction between those concepts. Yes, and and you know, he was a well-educated man, um, an avid, avid reader. Mm-hmm. Um, he edited books. He wrote anthologies. He wrote forwards to books. He was the voice of the Grinch who stole Christmas and won a Grammy for it. He right. starred on Broadway in five plays. Mm-hmm. Um, he was nominated for Tony opposite Julie Harris in The Lark. He did a huge body of radio work. I love his work on old time radio. I collect oh, a lot of those is. shows and uh, yeah. his appearances, for example, on Inner Sanctum, Suspense. Oh, some of the others are great. With his voice. Amazing. He could do anything with his voice. He could do anything with his eyes mm-hmm. and he could do anything with his hands. And he used those three things in film, on stage and in television. Isn't it amazing, Sarah, that when you think of his performance in the 1931 Frankenstein, and at least in Son of Frankenstein, as far as not talking, arguably his most impressive asset is his voice. And he's not even using his voice in those films. His voice is incredible. I equate it to Vincent Price, Orson Welles, uh, all acting juggernauts. But their voices, especially on radio back in the day, is just amazing. And it speaks to the multi-talented level of your father's repertoire that he could be a standout in a film without even using his voice. And yet, arguably, it could have been his greatest asset. Yes, indeed. I mean, he could have the most soothing of voices or the most terrifying of voices. And he could do the same thing with his eyes. He could uh, later in his life, you know, he could read bedtime stories. He did 20 albums with child- for children with the wonderful grandfatherly voice. <laughs> um, and in Dr. Seuss, uh, the Grinch stole, How the Grinch Stole Christmas, he not only narrated it, but he also was the voice of the Grinch. Right. So he could do anything with his voice. Absolutely. You were talking about his eyes. Yes. I just recently watched, I know he, he spoke so highly of Val Luton and how yes. the producer kind of resurrected his career a bit in the 40s. I really paid attention to one film in particular I was watching recently, which is Isle of the Dead. Oh, yes. Which, it's not necessarily his best performance, but what he does with his eyes in that movie is just astounding to me. And I, I see what you're saying about that particular asset, just uh, with his peepers, he's able to elicit uh, so much emotion in the viewer. And look what he does with his hands in Frankenstein when mm. he reaches for the light. Right. He had beautiful hands. And of course, uh, your hands and your eyes are as important as your body movement in silent film. Yeah, I mean, you kind of answered the question before I even asked it, but I mean, I was going to ask you, why do you believe Boris was ideal for this role in the 1931 Frankenstein? And what special qualities did he bring to the part, as well as the look and characterization of the monster? Well, I think we've already kind of laid the case, right? It's the use of his hands. It's his physical gestures. It's his eyes. It's the pantomime expressions. Yes. And of course, he had the braces on his legs that uh, added to the discomfort Hmm. but also was his walk Mm -hmm. Uh, that costume that wardrobe 
including the boots and the struts on his legs and the carrying of Colin Clive up the back hill of the lot. He lost 25 pounds during the making of that film. And I heard he knew he had back problems since he that he needed surgery for, right? That's right. That was a tough film to make, but uh, he, ne- he never complained about conditions. But I think that film and some that followed, certainly The Mummy, was one of the, it, it, the motivating causes of his devotion to being uh, and commitment to being one of the founding members of the Screen Actors Guild. That's his right. Card, his card number was number nine. Those actors were putting their careers on the line and in great jeopardy being involved with the founding of the Screen Actors Guild. My mother told me that when they would go to a party, the members would dance by one another and uh, whisper meeting Tuesday night so-and-so's house. Yeah, the fledgling labor movement of that time in America, and he was a part of that. That's something to be proud of. He was very quietly proud of it and pleased to have been Mm -hmm. involved with it. He felt it was very important that up-and-coming actors have a vehicle by which they could voice their needs. Absolutely. So let's pivot back to the 1931 Frankenstein film for a moment here. Is that monster character and that film perhaps what your dad is most proud of being associated with in his career? I know, for example, Sarah, that he thought highly of his role in the stage version of Arsenic and Old Lace, as well as the movies he did with Val Luton, particularly The Body Snatcher, which I would argue is just as impressive as his turn in Frankenstein. Oh, absolutely. He loved working with Val Luton. I think as far as favorite films, he had probably favorite films um, at different points of his career for Mm. different reasons. Certainly Frankenstein for the difference it made in his career, as well as Bride um, Mm -hmm. and the son of Frankenstein. No one had anticipated the impact and the success that uh, those films would would be and the difference it would make in his life what about his turn on broadway like an arsenic and old place he loved doing that but he absolutely refused to do it at first he said no 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 i'm not i couldn't possibly go on broadway i'm i'm not that good an actor i'm used to doing films i haven't been on the stage since i was in uh repertory theater years ago so it took quite a bit of trying to talk him into it and he said oh there must be at least three more important roles than mine in in this script and oh I don't think I could possibly oh no but they finally talked him into it and he he loved every minute of it yeah thank Um, goodness they were able to convince him because from what I understand it was a huge smash success Although oh, he did, he did not appear in the uh, the film version of it. Lindsay and Krauss would not release him from the play mm. to do the film, and it was something he was very sad about. He That's really too wanted bad. to do the film, right? Uh, with the line in the play that brought the house down every night, they couldn't release him, mm. and it's a it's a real shame. Yeah, too bad. What might have been, right? Yeah. So do you have any personal favorite memories associated with your father and his work on any of the Frankenstein films? As far as talking about them, he he what he said was how grateful he was. Mm-hmm. And he would say, you know, the monster has always been my best friend. 
And he, he would say that with tongue in cheek, but he also said it knowing what a difference it made in his life, both personally and professionally. He was not in the least bit upset about being tagged with that horror genre yeah, at all. And he was often asked if he minded being typecast and he would always respond, indeed, not a very, I'm a very lucky actor. He would say that a shoemaker should stick to his last and an actor should stick mm. to his trademark. And it's a very, very lucky actor who yeah. is indeed typecast because it keeps him a working actor. He genuinely meant that. Indeed, that was his cornerstone and he knew mm -hmm. it. He went on and had many other high points of his career. I know mm -hmm. he said... Working with Julie Harris in The Lark was one of the, the high points in his life. He loved that. She was perfect to work with, a wonderful person. And, and every night he looked forward to working with her um, on Broadway in The Lark. Mm. He enjoyed being in Peter Pan on Broadway because of all the youngsters coming backstage to try on the hook from his playing Captain Hook. He loved being in Arsenic and Old Lace on Broadway. Mm. He loved the new medium of, of television and the challenge that it, it brought. He moved from Los Angeles back to New York in 49 to embrace the new medium of television. Mm -hmm. But he continued to make films. He loved children. And so he uh, did, and he made many children's uh, recordings, 20 some odd children's recordings for Cademan uh, Records. I've um, heard some of them. They're great. And I love his people. Tales of the Frightened album, too. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. He had three television series of his own Thriller, as you mentioned, mm -hmm. and then Colonel March of Scotland Yard, and then The Veil. And then, of course, he did a huge body of, of television work. He sure. starred on all the prime shows of the day as a guest star. And then he did Playhouse 90. And I can't remember all the shows he did, uh, but he was on television all the time. And then, of course, yeah. uh, How the Moon Stole Christmas. So he could not have had a broader based career, more, more broad in its scope. Yeah. Multimedia um, Renaissance, man. Those are at least three to four mediums in which, you know, he, he dominated for a period there and left a strong legacy. No question about he it. He certainly did. When you meet with or address fans, like at conventions and otherwise, what's the question you think you get asked the most about your father? Uh, what was it like at my house at Halloween? Yeah. <laughs> so what was it like? Really quite boring. <laughs> <laughs> no bobbing for uh, human heads as opposed to no, apples? No, nothing like that. Like that. Um, <laughs> Halloween is an American holiday and my father was British. Mm. Uh, that's one answer. Two, mm -hmm. maybe people were afraid to come and knock on our door. <laughs> I figured there had to be some element to that. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. But it was no different than anybody else. Okay. All right. Well, you put the question to bed. No, You've answered it enough. Hopefully this will be the last up. time. Right. My father did not dress up as Frankenstein and answer mm. the door. No, no. despite uh, popular opinion. If you were to sum up, what would you say is Boris's legacy? What impact did he have on horror cinema in your estimation? And how would you like him to be remembered, Sarah? 
I think his legacy in that is immense. I think his impact on it is immense. When my godmother was writing one of the biographies that was written about my father, she said almost to a person, whether a personal friend or a professional co-worker, almost to a person, they would preface their remarks by saying, oh, dear Boris, and then go on with whatever they were going to say, mm. as she titled the book, Dear Boris. He was the dearest of humans. He was a gentleman. He was beloved by those who knew him, respected and revered by his peers in the business. There never was a bad word written or said about him in an industry that can be very vile and critical. Mm. Right. He was simply a lovely, gentle human being, kind, thoughtful, and very amusing. Yeah, unlike many of the murderous characters he played, he killed them with kindness. Your dad did, right? He did indeed. So are there any new or upcoming projects you're involved in or would like to kind of shout out to the audience here, uh, such as, for example, the brand new Boris Karloff, the man behind the monster documentary? That is exactly what I'd like people to be aware of. It is playing in uh, limited theaters across the country, and the theaters are listed. They are adding to the list daily. And um, it's a full-length documentary about my father and his career and uh, about my father, the man. And it's a wonderful film paying tribute to a lovely human being. And do you appear in it? Are you interviewed at all? I'm one of the people interviewed in it. Terrific. Always great to see you appear on camera talking about your father and his movies and his legacy. So I absolutely look forward to checking this out. Was there anything else you're working on or preparing to collaborate on that uh, listeners should know about? Well, I'm going to be at Chiller Theater in Parsippany, New Jersey, on Halloween weekend at the uh, Parsippany Hilton Hotel. And um, I'd love to meet more of my father's fans there. And I'm going to be in Minot, North Dakota, the weekend of this, uh, well, the Sunday, the 16th of October. Um, You can look that up on my website, which is karloff.com. And I'm working on some pretty exciting things that I really can't discuss quite yet. You'd have to kill us if we knew more, right? Well, right. I'd have to kill you if I told you. But keep looking on my webpage, please. Mm. And we um, will have some pretty exciting things to announce in the very near future. Sarah, you continue to stay safe and healthy and keep up the great work of keeping your father's legacy alive. It's alive, as they say, right? It's alive. It's alive. Well, it was wonderful talking to you, and I really appreciate the time. Sarah, happy Halloween season, and best to you and your family. Thank you, and to you and all of my father's fans. Thank you so much for having me on your show. Sarah, 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 you just made my Halloween dreams come true. What can I say? I I can't thank you enough for meeting with me to talk about your father's work and the importance of this month's featured film, Frankenstein. Thanks again. It's time now for Standing Ovations. This is the point where I give a shout out to a film, book, podcast, TV program, website, or other work that I think would be of interest to listeners like you. 
For October, my shout-out goes to Fathom Events, the content provider that brings back classic films to movie theaters, often timed with a major anniversary, kind of like what we do. This month, Fathom celebrates the 30th anniversary of The Silence of the Lambs with a reissue slated for select theaters on Sunday, October 17th, and Wednesday, October 20th, so coming right up here. Just a reminder that we commemorated the 30th birthday of The Silence of the Lambs on this very podcast, Back in February, that was episode number 32, if you want to look that up. Here's your opportunity to revisit the very best serial killer film and police procedural thriller ever made on the big screen. But the frightening fun doesn't stop there, folks. On Saturday, October 30th, Fathom presents a seasonally festive double feature. It's The Invisible Man from 1933, followed immediately by The Wolf Man from 1941. Classic horror is always better on the big screen, so make your plans to attend later this month. Instead of cluttering up our podcast with advertisements, we've decided to ask our listeners for their support. We could use your help to offset the costs to produce Cineversary, which includes expenses like podcast hosting provider fees. If you'd like to make a monetary contribution to the Cineversary podcast in any amount, large or small, we've made it safe and simple by partnering with PayPal to collect the funds. Simply visit tinyurl.com, that's T-I-N-Y-U-R-L.com, slash Donate Cineversary, and click on the Donate button. Any major credit card is accepted, and the entire transaction is handled securely and confidentially by PayPal. Or if you're familiar with PayPal, you can simply send us a payment in any amount you want to cineversegroup at gmail.com. And that's spelled C-I-N-E-V-E-R-S-E group at gmail.com. We really appreciate your generosity. Also, I'd love to hear what you think of our Cineversary podcast. You can email me suggestions or comments at cineversegroup at gmail.com. And I encourage you to visit cineversegroup.com, the portal for my film discussion group that I launched in 2005, where you can hear podcast recordings of our group discussions and read more about the movies we study. If you thought this installment was jam-packed, you won't want to miss Cineversary next month. So in November, I have two very special guests scheduled to join me to honor the 70th anniversary of one of the most esteemed romantic dramas of the 20th century. A Place in the Sun from 1951, directed by George Stevens and starring Montgomery Clift and Elizabeth Taylor. And who better to discuss this picture with me than the director's son, George Stevens Jr., the founder of the American Film Institute. And that's not all. Additionally, I'm going to speak with a man who's been called the greatest living writer on the movies. It's British film critic, historian, and author David Thompson. Until then, I remain your humble host, Eric Martin, reminding you to butter up that popcorn, live a big screen surround sound life, and cherish those classic movies because they're not getting older, they're getting better. Thanks again for listening, and happy Halloween!